0: Hello, and welcome to Risk Chats with the Firm. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we give a call to Sim Segal. He's the author of a fascinating paper entitled National Risk Management A Practical ERM Approach for Federal Governments. So, we discuss the notion of ERM at the federal national level. And I recommend you go download this uh, document at the link on our website and follow along. So with that, let's talk to Sim. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy today to have with us Sim Seagal. He wrote a very interesting paper about national risk management. So I want to introduce everybody to Sim. Hello, Sim. How are you today?
1: Good, good. How are you, Paul?
0: Doing great. Well, why don't we just start off a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, your interest and background in in risk management and, uh, you know, kind of why you decided to put this paper together.
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. Thank you. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm president of Symergy Consulting. It's a firm based uh, in Manhattan specializing exclusively in the ERM. I'm also of a side job as founder and academic director of uh, the, the ERM program at Columbia University, which is uh, now the largest in the world. I'm also author of <clears throat> excuse me, an ERM book published by Wiley, and uh, typically in the top ten in its category in Amazon, called corporate value of enterprise risk management. Uh, I've formerly served as uh, vice president on the Society of Actuaries Board of Directors. I'm, a, I'm an actuary by trade, so that's my profession. And I was their first chairman of their risk committee, where I led the design implementation of their ERM program. I'm also a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and a chartered enterprise risk analyst. Uh, prior to starting, <clears throat> excuse me, my own firm. In 2010, I led ERM consulting practices at larger firms like Deloitte Consulting, Aon, and uh, Watson-Y, which is now part of Willis Towers Watson.
0: That's great. So now, do you have any um, kind of background in, in governmental ERM aside from the paper, or is that something you had worked in in the past as well?
1: Well, I've done a, a little bit of work in uh, in ERM for, for uh, government agencies, and I've <clears throat> also had a lot of excuse me conversations with uh agency chief risk officers and uh there's a chapter in my book that that covers applying uh this methodology I came up with to on ERM to government agent uh, to non-corporate entities in general and government is one of those and I've been urged by uh some of some of the folks in in government ERM to, to expand on those thoughts and that's that's one of the things that led to the
0: paper great so yeah let's talk a little bit about this paper you know um You mentioned one reason, but what were some of the reasons why, you know, you wanted to put this paper together, and who did you work with to put it together?
1: I have long thought uh, that we should have a national chief risk officer, and I'm not sure when I started exactly thinking about it, but I do remember one of the drivers was, um, after reading the 9-11 commission report, and you're thinking about the, the setting up of the ODNI the director of national intelligence is an ERM like approach that the, the the fix of hey we weren't looking at all different pieces of information putting it together and getting a whole picture of what's going on so it's an ERM like approach to gather things together but only for terrorism risk so the the director of national intelligence sorts out all the info on terrorism and is responsible for reporting directly to the president and giving a picture on just that one risk type and i thought well that's a first step and thinking the next step would be applying uh having a role that would do that for all sources of risk and sorting that out. Uh, I had proposed uh writing a paper on uh, what a national chief risk officer would look like or how you might how a national CRO might develop a national ERM program and I approached the Joint Risk Management Section of the JRMS which is a joint effort between 3 uh, risk organizations uh, uh, research and, and and educational organizations one is the society of actuaries which is an international organization the canadian institute of actuaries which is a national organization and the casual actuarial society an international organization and they they funded the paper and um, you know their interest is you know actuaries are the world's oldest risk profession uh, they're experts at long-term projections involving multiply interacting decrements such as mortality, morbidity, longevity, investment rates, economic cycles, et cetera So it's a natural, a natural alignment with their interests to uh, to show what actuaries could do in, in that space. And so that, together with urging of some uh, you know, colleagues in government, um, it spurred me to really get moving on the paper. Either write the paper or perhaps a, a second book devoted just to that topic, and that's a uh, future possibility.
0: And uh, what would you say, you know, what really are the benefits of of putting into place a national risk management program for a federal government?
1: Yeah, well, in a way, if you think about uh, the question, if you could wipe out everything that exists in terms of strictures and you had the entire federal budget, how might you allocate it? How would, if you were asked to inform, where should we put it? To to make the best decisions to advance the national goals, how would you do that? And and ERM can help answer that question. After a few questions are answered first, uh, like what are your objectives? How do you measure them? But what you end up with is five major improvements. One is just forecasts, basic forecasts. An ERM method, if done correctly, of course, can improve forecasts. Just the baseline forecasts even get more rigorous, and that's one of the low-hanging fruit of applying a uh, value-based uh, enterprise risk management is just strengthen the basic baseline projections but beyond that is understanding uh, confidence ranges around various levels of over or under performance uh, in part by extracting and leveraging information from subject matter experts on a consistent uh, basis so that's number one just basic forecasts are improved the second is simulations so you get a more rigorous simulation tool which in Improves your ability to understand the integrated impact of potential changes in the environment, national or global situation in terms of its impact on the critical national objectives. So that's the second is is what if things change and how does that affect us <clears throat> and what we're doing in our goals. A third is prioritization. It improves focus on the most important threats, either individual threats or combination threats, which can be the most damaging, using a quantitative model that captures the full impact uh, of the events, including offsetting or exacerbating effects. So prioritization is really important, of course, especially with limited uh, time, attention, and resources. The fourth thing it does is enhances decision-making in general, of course, starting with the most important decisions. You get a more robust uh, and informed picture, an integrated picture of the impact of potential decisions. So rather than just looking at well, what if things change? Well, what if we make decisions differently, uh, ranging from strategic uh, planning to budgeting to risk mitigation? So a whole range of types of decisions can be enhanced with this information. And lastly, and partly overlapping with these, is success. You have an increased likelihood of achieving critical national objectives
0: once you have ERM applied at a national level. Right. And you know something else I wanted to ask you about. You know up front in the paper, you you say that your approach to ERM is a value-based approach. Can you explain yeah. a little bit what that means?
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a little bit uh, different approach, and it's an emerging approach that's getting more and more adopted. Uh, traditional approaches uh, to ERM have challenges. Uh, most most you know, use COSO or ISO 31000. It's pretty similar in practice type of approach, uh, and there's several weaknesses with that that I've identified many years ago. And the way it first sparked was um, I remember someone asking me the question, How do you make the business case for enterprise risk management? And <clears throat> I thought, Well, I've done a lot of work in value based management. So, value based management is an old concept, just understanding the drivers of value, whatever it is the organization values and how we measure it, and making it go up. And that's the best way to make a business case for anything, and I've, my entire life has been in, in risk and understanding risk, and so I realized the two really needed to come together. I mean, the, the, the planning people typically look at sort of upside. You know, we invest in this, we do this, we're going to get all these benefits. It's going to be a big, that hockey stick of performance going on up, and they look at the upsides, uh, and the risk folks traditionally only looked at the downside, and I realized the two needed to come together. We needed to speak the same language, both risk and reward, because that's the most, Common phrase in any business decision is, is risk reward. We have to have the right trade-offs and the right profile. There, and we have to really understand both with the same level of rigor. It was missing, so I took the value-based work that I'd done and the risk work and uh, value, uh, value-based management work and the risk uh, risk management enterprise risk management work and married them together. So this also was developed um, in response to three main challenges I saw with traditional ERM approaches. Traditional ERM. Uh, has an in inability to quantify the hard-to-quantify risks, uh, the strategic and operational risk. And that's what I call the holy grail of ERM, is how do you do that? Everyone's trying to figure out how do you practically quantify on a consistent basis those risks. Second, I saw that most ERM programs had an unclear definition of risk appetite, a lot of confusion about what it was, how do you define it, how do you state it clearly. Uh, so that's that's been lacking. And the third is just the basic ability to use ERM to inform decision-making. A lot of people do ERM and it sits in a binder or sits in a report and it doesn't actually change things. People cannot use it to make decisions because of the way it is, so that's that's what led to it. At, at its essence, uh, a value-based enterprise risk management approach uh, has the risk defined, risk in general defined as anything that causes a deviation from your baseline strategic plan goals. So that immediately connects ERM to strategic planning, which leads to buy-in uh, by, by stakeholders because it measures the impact on what everybody knows they have to care about. Whatever is in our strategic plan, it's in the plan. We have to deliver uh, anything. If we measure things by what causes us to miss that or overachieve it, now we're interested. It also helps us focus on key risks, not minutia. A lot of ERM programs are really an enterprise risk management approach. In other words, they take risks at really tiny, granular levels and just aggregate them into some giant uh, software or something that, and track it. That's not effective. It really should be coupled enterprise risk management. So it should be enterprise level risks, large aspects that move things up or down. That is, should be the focus and that helps when you're looking at things that can really impact our achievement of plan goals. The second thing is that it provides both risk and reward information, as I mentioned, which is critical for decision-making, unlike traditional ERM, which often only looks at downside risk exposure and often only super downside. Uh, lastly, this approach quantifies all sources of risk in a rigorous yet practical way. It's also consistent, which uh, allows aggregation. So it allows prioritization across all risk types. It supports decision-making, traditional approaches give you red, yellow, green colors, uh, high, high, medium, and low red, yellow, green qualitative information. That's not the way to make a business decision. Nobody's going to invest or shift resources based on that. And also, uh, one of the uh, uh, keys to the value-based approach is defining risks by their originating source. This is another common mistake in ERM programs, is that risks are sometimes defined as the source of risk, sometimes by the outcome. Uh, people say, oh, we just may miss this goal. Well, that's not a risk. That's not a source of risk. There are maybe 85 different things that could cause that. What do you mean? Or sometimes defined as an intermediate impact. Like people will often have reputational risk on their list, and that's not a source of risk. There may be many different things that rise to the level of a, an impact that could generate reputational damage, either temporary or lasting, which then downstream impacts our goals, so we care about it. And we need to install that universal, consistent discipline of looking at risk by source, which gives a better context for even evaluating qualitatively what we think about the likelihood of how something comes about. It changes our opinion of how likely it is, of course. And we also have to go to the source so that we make sure to capture all the downstream impacts to accurately quantify. So, so the, the, the value-based approach really fixes a lot of problems of traditional enterprise risk
0: management. Yeah, that's great. I think it's a good message for our federal uh, U.S. programs because you know I think a lot of them are still based on, you know, what all things could go wrong as opposed to what things could we do right, so to speak. So I really like your approach. Um,
1: Thank you. Yeah, it is true. That is the most common method used.
0: Well, let's talk about some skill sets here because you know what you're talking about uh, sounds like a daunting job to kind of look across the entire government here and uh, you know manage risks. Um, you know, what would you consider? The qualifications for for a good national risk officer, you know, what, what what background would they need to have, or what's you know what qualities would they need to have?
1: Well, a, a good question. It's uh, it's tough to visualize a role that hasn't existed yet. It's so unique, but it, 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 like like any chief risk officer, there are three main types of functions. You would be leading ERM activities. You would maintain consistency of approaches, tools, and techniques and you're also responsible for building buy-in for the for the approach which really hinges a lot on the methodology uh, but it also has a lot to do with communication so that's that's the main t- functions in terms of the the knowledge experience and skill that they have to have it has to span a variety of areas because this is a really critical role in general for any agency uh, certainly at the national level obviously knowledge experience and skill in enterprise risk management is required uh, also knowledge experience and skill in risk management and management in general with pre- preference for expertise in at least one of the following, either strategic risk, which uh, the way I'm defining it is uh, risks such as strategy development risk, strategy execution risk, regulatory risk, supplier risk, governance risk, or operational risk, which is HR risk, IT or cyber risk, disasters, both natural, like pandemic or man made like or terrorism. Process risk, compliance risk, etc., uh, or financial risk, which is a typical market, credit, liquidity, commodity price risk, currency risk, economic risk, insurance risk, such as expected changes, uh, unexpected changes. Excuse me, in uh, morbidity, mortality, uh, longevity, demographic risks, and as, such as unexpected changes in reproductive and working life patterns, unexpected changes in emigration, immigration. immigration. Uh, another aspect of the knowledge, experience, and skill required would be modeling. Uh, Being able to to handle dynamic projections of multiple interacting variables over extremely long time horizons. Being able to develop credible assumptions that are suitable for both near-term and long-term projections. Leadership is another aspect, just being able to communicate in a way to gain buy-in from key stakeholders. Pure management skills of project management, coordinating people with disparate uh, backgrounds, formal and informal reporting relationships to the CRO. Uh, communication. I mentioned a couple times already, but specifically expertise in the Socratic method of inquiry, uh, understanding uh, cognitive biases, uh, which affects the different interviews to gather information and in these and these processes. Ability to interact at, at, a, at a range of levels of authority. Ability to comprehend and be understood by a range of technical professionals, and also the highest degree of of ethical integrity. To, in terms of an honest unbiased agnostic approach to the analysis interpretation and reporting of the information to internal stakeholders and external stakeholders such as uh, public allied nations etc
0: right so and you know so say we have we found this amazing person so they're going to come in they're going to be our uh, national risk officer you know what would be some of the first things how, how do they structure a national nationwide risk program you know objectives metrics Identifying risks, making decisions—you know—how how would this NRO uh, uh, structure this approach?
1: It, it, it's challenging, of course. Uh, this is one of the most challenging uh, things you can imagine. But the key initial step is to succinctly express the national, critical national objectives and corresponding key metrics, and that is a, that is a tough exercise. In thinking through uh, writing this white paper on how, how to apply the value-based enterprise risk management approach at the national level, and with an eye towards you know people reading that, you know, should think of their particular agency, all the concepts that apply, but at a more uh, narrow scope level, obviously there, it's really analogous, is uh, I had to think that through. So I to be able to demonstrate, at least to write out how to approach this I had to put on a hat and think, well, if I were in that position, what would it be? I had to also write this because it was funded in a way that would, it was supposed to be able to be applied or thought about by any nation uh, globally. So I had to think how it might differ from country to country. So I just came up with some examples of, of what if you had to make a handful of, of objectives, but the same process, I'm just – taking a flyer and saying here's here's one way to think about it with an example. But the process wise is to sit down, it's a very intense conversation, but it, it actually is it takes a very short amount of time. It's usually done uh, in a very short amount of like a day. But it's intense thinking about what are the what are the objectives and which ones are subsumed in others. Ah, uh, which ones may be correlated enough with others that they're they're captured if we would, and or there's also sometimes an exercise that we go through to look at a handful of key risks that we know we're going to have and think through how it affects different different uh, objectives and metrics, and that helps us also see which ones are uh, again subsumed or correlated that can be succinctly expressed. These it has to be just a handful, and there is no. National strategic plan to begin with, <laughs> so right. so it's difficult, and people just very much disagree uh, across the country, state to state, party to party. What what should be? And we're talking about national, not the responsibilities of state and city and municipalities, but just the federal uh, government obligations and what are the, what are the objectives? So it's it's tricky, but there are some overarching things that people would agree on. Uh, and I picked the four overarching overarching objectives and ten underneath those of you know protecting life uh, protecting health, uh, protecting wealth of the citizenry and then, uh, sovereignty. So those, those four. So it it, is just an example, but the process is intense, but it can be quick, but it's, it's challenging.
0: Right. And those four are good examples, I think would be relevant to any administration who's in, you know, who's in power at the the time. I mean, I think those are good examples. Um, so a couple more questions for you. So we kind of talked about how would you narrow down the objectives? Um, I'm curious, though, about metrics because, you know, um, do you develop these based on evidence or is there public perception? Because, you know, in government and politics there's so much that's important about public perception, not just pure evidence. Have you thought about that?
1: Yeah, I I actually did. I thought about the different, uh, so there were ten objectives underneath, you know, those four overarching objectives, and I had to think through how you would measure all of these. And, And some of the metrics are actual metrics. Uh, but perceptive metrics matter, too, because that's how government works. So just as an example, if um, your military strength. So if military strength is one of our objectives that we need for sovereignty, uh, then we might, you might say, well, we could measure that. Uh, one proxy, just one example, might be uh, military spend, just the annual budget for military spending and that relativity to, to different countries. So... That's one way. Another way might be to say, well, let's look at our military spend, the ratio of our military spend together with the military spend of our closest allies as a ratio to the military spend of our top adversary and their closest allies. That's, that's just another example. So that may be you know, an actual number you can measure and project, but then there's perception. So if the public has a different perception of a military strength, and if it's skewed versus reality, it could lead to... Uh, misfunding certain initiatives or underfunding other ones for the, the public driven pressures that the government may result in, it may result in the government making decisions that are not aligned with the public good. So the, so National CRO has to keep an eye on those type of perceptive metrics and you know public service messaging or other communications to adjust for that to make sure that it doesn't get too much out of whack and leads to uh, results that are, that are not good for the public. Right, right. But there's right. there's a lot more to the process. I mean, you hit on a couple of really important things. You got to think through. You got to think through what are the objectives. So this is not even an ERM thing, but you need it for ERM. Enterprise risk management can help you be more likely to succeed at achieving your objectives. But you first have to be clear what your objectives are. So if you can state them and say, "Here's what what our objectives are. Here's how we measure them long term, uh, the actual perceptive metrics," then you actually got to build a model to dynamically project them. Uh, in a way that's built to be able to handle risks to show how it would change. So first you build the baseline and that baseline at that high level it tends to pull information from all different types of models and it actually is a model test and it validates and and finds disconnects between different models. So it's a good exercise to go through just in the terms of the baseline projection. And then you uh, go through a process to identify risks, which is Typically, in a qualitative risk assessment, uh, interviews with two to three dozen uh, leaders, uh, uh, that's a qualitative scoring, like its severity, individually come up with what the risks are, vote on everybody's risk, have a consensus meeting, and draw the line between a longer list of risks but then separate that between key risks, which could be the larger ones, versus the non-key, which the non-key are just monitored with key risk indicators over time. The key risk indicators are advanced to a second step, which is typically missing in traditional enterprise risk management, which is to actually quantify the risk. And having this model that I described is built in a way that it can quantify any type of risk on a consistent basis in terms of how it affects what we care about. And that's really the key. The value base means we're gonna clarify first what we care about, what everybody knows they have to protect, and we don't want it to go down, we want it to go up, and then uh, project that dynamically and measure risks individually, Uh, find find what risk we care about, and then the second step is to quantify them by developing uh, individual deterministic risk scenarios with subject matter experts, so it's a probabilistic deterministic approach to thinking about what individual sources of risk can happen, what combinations can happen, mapping out different discrete scenarios of how it would actually play out by pulling on subject matter expertise, uh, documenting, sharing that vertically and horizontally to vet it, uh, putting it into the model. We end up getting better prioritization of individual risk combinations we understand the overall likelihood of achieving plan or exceeding it or missing it by a certain amount and that tool is then used to inform decision-making setting understanding our risk appetite our risk exposure informing risk appetite and risk limits looking at how the environment might change looking at how we might make decisions differently whether it's uh... new trading partners uh... different alliances uh different mitigation and investments in infrastructure, you know, what have you, across all different risks. It doesn't matter. We can really evaluate any spend or shift of resources in terms of is it going to help us more likely achieve achieve our goals? And it can also look at the interconnectedness between a lot of different factors and drivers and sources. So there's a lot less unexpected consequences because the National Chief Risk Officer is such a position to be able to evaluate any change in the environment externally or internal decisions or potential decisions and how things might play out which which aspects might be affected how it might change and what is the best decision to make at that time
0: absolutely and and just for our listeners again i'm going to provide a link to your paper on our website it's a great paper i mean all the things that you're mentioning these are in the papers a very thorough amazingly well thought out and very clearly you know structured paper that i think is just very interesting, and not just for a national risk program, but for, you know, your own agency risk program. I think you have some really interesting and very structured approaches in there, so I think it's, it's a great paper. Um, appreciate it. Yeah, and so just a couple more questions for you, and this is just kind of a quick little podcast to get people interested in, in the paper. Um, so I, I just kind of wanted to re- have a couple last questions for you, um, kind of going over to... You know do you think uh, you know do you think the US federal government is, is ready for a national risk program you know have you seen some positive signs out there that this is a possibility
1: well it, it's it's tough to disagree that's, that's a great question I, I, I hope so I, I assume I hope I hope so I don't know I was very encouraged by the OMB's circular a uh, 123 uh, pushing everybody to do uh, enterprise risk management that was really encouraging a little various aspects of that as being done in different ways in terms of implementation. Uh, I was encouraged a couple of years ago when COSO, uh, they admitted their methodology didn't work and they revised it and I saw that they, I was say, borrowed a couple of concepts from the value-based approach, which is, A, we should be defining risk as deviation from strategic plan, we should be looking at risk by source. I think that move is in a correct direction, and that is the most common method used in government, although I'm not sure that the revisions are as widely adopted. I think people are still using the old COSO, but I think things are heading in the right direction. Uh, I think that the need is certainly there. Uh, And I I have heard some murmurings that maybe there's some committees already talking, thinking about not quite that, but moving in that direction of the aggregate look uh, across the country.
0: Right. Yeah. And I know uh, our organization, a firm, has also been looking at, you know, ideas for potential legislation or other things that would make risk management something more, you know, on the books for folks that, you know, something that needs to be done. So I think that, that might be helpful as well. Um, so, and just to, to wrap it up, I think I was just curious, you know, for our listeners here. But you know, so you, you know, you did this, I think, based on some things out of Canada. And did you look across different governments across the world to see if uh, anybody out there is, is is implementing anything like this or has these concepts in mind?
1: I'm not aware of anybody doing it uh, this way and having that kind of a uh, kind of role. But uh, I I have been aware of. Um... Meeting several years ago of different uh, approaches in different countries, and some of the leading ones around the world. I did in writing the paper. Yeah, you mentioned there were a couple of U.S. well, international organizations, mostly U.S.-based, and then one Canadian uh, that was a big funder of this this this, uh, this paper. But I did look across various countries, um, U.S. and allied countries uh, mostly. Uh, to see, just in terms of thinking about the objectives, what common objectives might there be, and metrics, and so forth, like that, but not not in terms of I haven't recently researched; I haven't been monitoring over the last year or so uh, the different practices. But I would be surprised if this role uh, existed the way we're we're describing it yet.
0: Right, but you are seeing it obviously in state and local governments, federal governments of different nations, correct?
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, I just uh, heard recently that um, the uh, newly elected mayor of Chicago had, apparently had made it part of her platform to have a chief risk officer and have it be a prominent position on her staff. And so they're, they're looking to fill that position. So I, I, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I'm waiting to see it pop up more and more. You're right. I, I would like to see it pop up more, uh, more cities, more states. Uh, and I, I think that's the general trend. I'm hoping for that.
0: Well, Sim, I love this paper. I want everybody to read it who's listening today, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on to talk about it.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: That's our show. Thanks for joining us. As always, visit our website, firm.org. There you can find this podcast and many others. You can also find the links for today's podcast. Uh, we will have the paper that Sim wrote follow along unless you already did that at the beginning of the podcast but you can do it now afterwards as well and we have quite a full docket of podcasts for you this end of the summer so go and check us out frequently and until next time this is paul marshall signing off for wrist chats with a firm